0: This is the Art of Composing Podcast with John Branningham, Episode 11 Partimenti and the Secrets of the Greatest Composers, an interview with Professor Robert Yerdingen. Welcome to the Art of Composing Podcast with me, John Brantingham, where you can learn to compose music. music, 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 music. Welcome back to the Art of Composing Podcast. This is going to be a very short introduction because today's episode is quite long and a little bit different than usual. Today's episode is an interview with Professor Robert Yerdingen, the author of Music in the Gallant Style, um, and I think you're going to find it very interesting. First off, just to let you know, this podcast is brought to you by the Art of Composing Academy. What is the Academy? Well, the Academy is an online school for composition where you can learn the fundamentals in a systematic and thorough way. So if you're interested in learning composition, you can sign up for the free course at artofcomposing.com free. Um, and i just like to say a thank you to all my Patreon supporters. If you're interested in supporting the podcast directly, you can go to artofcomposing.com slash support. So without further ado, let's go ahead and move on to the interview. Today's guest is Robert Yerningen, professor of music theory and cognition at Northwestern University's Bienen School of Music. He is the author of numerous books, including Studies on the Origin of Harmonic Tonality, A Classic Turn of Phrase Music in the Psychology of Convention, and Music in the Gallant Style, for which he received the Wallace Berry Award from the Society for Music Theory. He's written many articles and reviews in the fields of music theory, music perception, and 18th century musical style, as well as serving on the editorial boards of Music Theory Spectrum, the Journal of Music Theory, the Journal of the American Musicological Society the executive board of the Society for Music Theory, and as editor of Music Perception. So, uh, welcome, Robert. Uh, thank you, John. Uh, first, if you'd like to tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe how you got into the world of music theory and composition.
1: Uh, I suppose you could say it was it was a, 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 a major mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I come from the boondocks, I mean, from the... You know, the town I grew up in had 300 people. This is in northern Minnesota. This is Garrison Keeler country. Yeah. Uh, and I took piano lessons starting at six years old from a lady in the town who taught out of her house. And by the time I got to high school, which was in a, a bigger town, uh, I thought I was like the best pianist in my county. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so I thought the world would be impressed so I decided that I must be a music major then and and go and share this gift with everybody. And so when I got out into the real world, I realized that whoa I wasn't I wasn't even in the top 10,000. Wow. Know? <laughs> and so uh, I had to reevaluate and say, "Well, what am I good at?" And and I was good at studying. I think that's actually what I was good at. Yeah. So I, I I kind of fell into uh music history and music theory.
0: Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I, I uh I guess I was kinda of similar. I was an okay trumpet player and and when I went to school it, it became clear that I was never gonna be professional, so I kind of dove into theory as well. Um well that's really interesting. Um your book uh, is the main thing that I want to talk about today. Uh, music in the galant style, although we'll probably move into other directions. Okay. Um, if you could explain a little bit this concept of galant because most of us grew up hearing the term baroque and uh, you know that's how we associate this the music of Bach and I guess maybe uh, early Mozart although he's moving into classical. How does Gallant differ from all that?
1: Well, um you know let's think about 20th century popular music something that you know we a lot of people have actual experience of mm-hmm. and you know if if you asked uh, a garage band kid in 1960 you know what what kind of music do you play they would say rock
2: mm-hmm.
1: okay or uh if it was a clarinet player in the 1930s they'd probably say i do swing you know, mm-hmm. so gallant is one of those kind of terms. It's what the people who made this music would have said that they were doing. The uh, Baroque and classical, you know, yin-yang kind of dichotomy of, of two opposite kind of styles actually is a, is a much later thing. It's It's from the late 19th, early 20th century, and it was borrowed from art history.
3: Oh, yeah. So
1: music historians who... Who didn't have the status of art historians at that time tried to borrow the art historians' terms, and they applied it to, to music. Now, baroque was once used. I mean, the word was once used a couple times in the eighteenth century, but only a couple times, and it, it had a negative meaning. Yeah. Uh, classical, of course, you know, it means something every different every fifty years. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, I mean, now we have classic rock. Yeah, which wasn't classic at all when it was kind of, yeah. <laughs> it was done. Uh, you know, it was kind of insurgent and revolutionary and all that. But now it's classic. So, uh, gallant was one of those words. It it meant not just a musical style. It was more like an attitude, and in the way that hip hop is used today. Yeah, you know, uh, I mean, a person's stance, their clothes, uh, really their 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 flow (laughs) okay whatever you want to
0: kind of a sophistication to it
1: yeah they just they got it you know they uh, they are hip-hop and in that way gallant was that it was it was what an aristocrat or a wealthy middle-class person wanted to be it's what they how they wanted to stand how they wanted to talk uh it was elegance yeah it was uh a certain uh well it's an odd word but insouciance you know that's like you don't let things bother you too much. It's it Actually, it was rather like aristocratic cool.
0: Okay. Kind of yeah. aloof to the problems of the world. You could just carry on.
1: Yeah. You you know, a messenger would come in and say, oh, Duke, you know, somebody's invaded the next town.
0: And
1: <laughs> you weren't supposed to get excited. Yeah. You know, just send just out- just,
0: just throw some Mozart on and everything will be okay. <laughs>
1: exactly. Yeah. So it was aristocratic cool.
0: It's interesting because I remember a a teacher I had in high school who was teaching us about the different periods of music. And she said, uh, you know, this is the Baroque period, uh, but it doesn't match up with the Baroque period of art. Music was always playing catch up and that always seems strange to me. But uh, it makes a lot more sense if if you're considering that music historians were just kind of latching on to art after the fact and trying to match things up kind of haphazardly.
1: There was a very strong German tilt to the early music histories. So basically, uh, Baroque was Bach and Handel,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and classic was Mozart and Haydn. Yeah. And uh, things were much more complicated than that. So you can play an Italian piece from, um, oh, the 1730s, let's say, and if you would use, a let's say, a piano instead of a harpsichord, ordinary listeners would say, oh, well, that's classical. Mm-hmm. Or if you take a piece from even late in Mozart's time uh, – from let's say uh you know northern germany or something and add a harpsichord to it people would say oh that's baroque yeah and so a lot of these markers uh are kind of um, what should i say they're not historically very helpful
0: yeah yeah so how did you get into this world of studying gallant music and um and just these the, the pedagogical techniques that they used back then what was kind of the catalyst for that
1: Uh, A couple different things. Uh, I was in graduate school. I had some some great professors. There was uh, Leonard Meyer, who's uh, deceased, but a a wonderful music theorist and music psychologist. Uh, Eugene Narmer, Mm -hmm. uh, a conductor and trombonist, but also a great music theorist. And then a historian named Eugene Wolfe. And so, you know, I was trying to understand what these guys were talking about in their own work. And I kept coming back to... uh, Leonard Meyer had this idea that maybe there were archetypes. He he bought, borrowed the term from, from literary history, but mm-hmm. it seemed to him that there were certain kinds of phrases that kept coming up in classical music, you know, more often than would be random, yeah. just given chords <laughs> and melodies. And he wondered if maybe these phrases were, well, part of the tradition itself. And uh, I thought, well, that could be, but... Leonard Meyer was not a person who spent his life in archives looking at obscure music. So I, I, I wondered, you know, if a person did that, if you you looked at the whole repertory and not just Haydn and most certain things, you know, would that hold up? Mm -hmm. Would would there be certain ways of saying things, uh, kind of stock phrases, uh, that would show up. And so I, I dug into one of these and sure enough, it was really surprising. Uh, There, It turns out about, I don't know, 15, uh, two, four two, four-bar patterns account for an awful lot of 18th-century music. And, you know, you you might think, well, that's crazy. I mean, don't they have any imagination? (laughs) No. Uh, But, you know, think about what their lives were actually like. You know, today we're in a kind of a masterpiece culture where we imagine that somebody chisels away at a symphony for six years and then gets a performance. But these guys had to crank it out. We would be hard pressed to copy as fast as these guys composed. Yeah. There really wasn't much time for it. So, so in a way, when they wrote down something, they were transcribing a mental improvisation. Yeah. You know, basically they just thought a piece. And to do that, it's really helpful to rely on pre-existing things. I mean, think how hard the blues would be if there wasn't a blues form, if there weren't all those licks or, or a jazz improvisation where somebody hadn't spent hundreds of hours practicing that particular progression, that particular riff, you know? Yeah. Uh, so it it was tremendously helpful, I think, for the business that they were in.
0: Yeah. And I think it's good to know this stuff for people who are interested in composing in this style um, and also not to be uh, necessarily snobs about other styles like pop and rock because, uh, you know, I know growing up as a kid, I was always into, you know, classical music and, and I would look at my friends who listened mostly to rock and be like, oh, they're just using the same things over and over again. Little did I know.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's, um, I think what's partly been interested to me, interesting to me is that uh, when you look at what uh, children, well, children were apprenticed to music as early as seven years old. So music was a craft, like carpentry or plumbing or being a seamstress or something like that. And you would get up to a certain age, like seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, 10, 11, and then you would be apprenticed. You would be sent to a master musician, and you would work for them doing simple things like copying or, or whatever they needed, maybe cleaning their house. And you would pick up from them the the, the craft. Uh, this continued for a long time. I mean, longer than most people know. So, for example, uh, Ravel and Debussy, they both entered the Paris Conservatory at 10 and 11.
3: Oh, wow. I mean, and and it's that. not
1: because they were amazing prodigies. That was the normal age. In in the Naples conservatories, the normal age was seven to ten. So they would kids would spend ten years at the conservatory. Uh, In Naples, for example, they would sign an indenture. In other words, basically the conservatory owned them for a decade, Mm -hmm. because as they learned, they would become uh, marketable. They could sing. They could be in a choir. uh, They could play. They could be in a in a pit orchestra. So uh, the conservatory would begin to rent them out. And that sort of paid for their keep and for their, for their training. Now, I didn't know a lot of this sort of stuff originally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I uh, was interested in these phrases. And I, I became really sensitive to the kind of phrases. I mean, for example, if a person listened to B.B. King their whole life,
2: mm-hmm. if they knew
1: every track, every concert tape, everything that he ever did, I'm guessing that you would almost know every lick that BB King could do. You know, you'd have a vocabulary, kind of a BB King vocabulary,
2: yeah, yeah,
1: and and you'd know it all. Well, after a while, I kind of got that type of knowledge of classic, baroque, classic phraseology. You know, what if you think of a composer at a at a court, a royal court? Well, he speaks music to to his patron. Yeah. And so what is he going to say? Well, he's going to say a vocabulary of things that the patron already recognizes. And so the music works for the patron because it's, it's recognizable. In the same way that a B.B. King fan goes to a B.B. King concert when he was alive, uh, they expect to hear all those things. Yeah, yeah. So um, I knew that. And then one day I was chatting with a, with a colleague here at Northwestern, and uh, we were talking about some technical thing, uh, like our fourths dissonant or something like that. <laughs> and uh,
0: The typical said, music theory discussion. <laughs>
1: yeah, real nerdy stuff. Yeah. And uh, so he said, that, well, that sounds like one of these partimento things. And I, I'd never heard that word, mm. ever. And I said, well, what's that? So he said, well, I, I've got a Xerox of, of something here. So let me show you. And... He, uh, he brought it out, and it was a bass. It was what I call a Romanesca opening, mm-hmm. a sort of the Paco canon Canon opening. Followed by then what I call a printer riposte, mm-hmm. which is the bass going uh, like, Fa, mi, re, do, and the melody going, La, fa, mi, like that. which you know it's it's actually in a lot of pop music. Yeah. particular riff. Uh I only saw the bass, but I heard the piece. I mean, I knew what was going on. Yeah. And I thought, "Wow, were they teaching this stuff?" And so I began to get into it, and the answer was yes. <laughs> they were, they were teaching this stuff. They taught every, well, not every possible, but all the bass progressions that a person needed to know. Yeah. And then they would write them out in an exercise so that you had to... Well, you would see the left-hand part at a a harpsichord or an organ, and then you would provide the right-hand part. So you had a kind of thread to follow, but you had to understand it enough so that you could make it into a whole piece of music. And this thread would take you through different keys... Uh, different figurations, you know. It might start out, bom, 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 bom. Then later on, it would go, ba, ba, bom, 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 Again, this is for eight, nine, ten-year-old kids. They would figure out, ah, okay, that's the same thing but different. Yeah. So, so th- there were there were no instructions to these books. Uh, I think they got the instructions from a living teacher. Yeah. But the exercise books uh, survived and you know, with my little light bulb that went off uh, as to uh, how it connected to learning to improvise this music uh, now we've learned quite a bit about this. These things were everywhere. I mean, it's the regular population people who weren't professional musicians didn't know about this stuff. Mm -hmm. In the same way that uh, I think a lot of fans of jazz today probably have never seen uh a Jimmy Ebersole, uh pattern book.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> but the people who have come up doing that stuff, they know all about it. Uh, so this stuff uh, was really successful. Naples just ruled. They, they took over the world of European music. I mean, Thomas Jefferson was a big music fan, played violin. Mm-hmm. And collected a lot of music when he was he was an ambassador in Paris or went as, as a diplomat there, and his music is is preserved at uh, uh, Monticello. Mm-hmm. Half of it's written by Naples composers. Wow, you know that's it's a. I mean, the the U.S. was a long way from Naples. In those yeah,
0: days. yeah. Now it's so easy to get stuff, just go on the internet and it's all there, including all this, all your hard work.
1: It's all there. So um, the the Paris Conservatory was getting set up during the French Revolution. Uh, The the word conservatory started out meaning a place to conserve orphans. Hmm. So the, the conservatories in Naples were originally orphanages and they had to teach trades to these kids so that they could go off on their own someday and make a living. So a cheap trade to teach was music, especially if they were singers. So uh, there were many, many orphanages in Naples, but four of them became music teaching institutions. So the name then morphed into a music school. And the Conservatory of Paris was set up in imitation of the Naples Conservatories. And so when they set it up, they pretty much imported the curriculum. Mm-hmm. So what I've been studying the last couple of years is that all of these partimenti and sofeggi and all these exercises that the kids did, they were done in Paris too. Yeah. So believe it or not, Claude Debussy played partimenti wow. as a kid. It, it was just what you did.
0: And then I imagine that has in some way been imported through Nadia Boulanger to a lot of American composers
1: Absolutely. Nadia Boulanger herself wrote Partimenti. And, um, oh, for example, Luciano Berrio Mm -hmm. was given all six books of uh, Feneroli's Partimenti by his grandfather when when, uh, Luciano was six years old. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So it's, uh, you know, that older generation of avant-garde composers did have traditional chops.
0: Yeah. It feels kind of like you've uncovered this secret chest of information, and the composer, the hidden composer society, is going to go after you now soon.
1: Yeah, you know, yeah, I've outed all. That.
0: <laughs> you've There's, revealed this, our secrets. <laughs>
1: this stuff is pretty old, so we're. It's it's a little bit like artists going back and learning how people did these beautiful portraits. Yeah, you know, because it, it wasn't just like they just felt the moment and then it happened. Yeah. You needed a lot of technique to be able to do this stuff.
0: Yeah. Well, so in the book um, and in a few articles, you talk about, uh, you talk about obviously about partimenti, but there's other kinds. There's solfeggi there's intervolature, I'm not sure if I pronounce that right, regole. Yeah. Um, how do these all relate to each other?
1: Sure. Um, the uh, regole, or rules, like regular uh, rules,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh Were a list of the basic things you had to know, and then they would usually come with a small partimento base so you could practice it. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: they were things like how to resolve a fourth to a third, like a 4 3 suspension. Mm -hmm. That would be a rule. Actually, the the rules are rarely rules, they're just instances. Mm -hmm. You know, they'll say, This is how you do this. Yeah. And then they show you. And so they go through suspensions. They will say, um, there was something called the rule of the octave, Mm -hmm. which is if you play an octave in the bass ascending and then descending, there was a regular chord to play on each of those scale degrees. would learn that and it actually it's tremendously helpful it, yeah it's I, on it's on my website and you can you can look it up but if i was you,
0: actually playing through it this morning i was like i really uh, should memorize the role of the octave because yeah, it seems exactly. very practical
1: it's like instant handle yeah uh it, it's uh you know in modern terms we could think of it almost like it's the default case for all those scale degrees
0: yeah uh, the, the way i like to tell people is it's kind of it's not rules it's 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 expectations it's what the listener's ear kind of expects to hear um exactly you can violate that but it comes with consequences
1: yeah exactly and you know imagine the this the the world again in which they are uh have got a, a, an orphan kid uh who uh is now 18 years old pretty hot stuff <laughs> Uh, some kind of personal connection gets him uh, an audition with a duke someplace to mm-hmm. to to be the organist for the duke's chapel, and uh, the duke says, "Well, play something." And so the you know, improvise something, and the kid improvises something. He does something that no one understands at that court. Well, he's out.
3: Yeah, yeah. it's,
1: yeah. it's got to be understandable. Well, understandable is often just recognizable familiar yeah. you know? so uh they learned all that stuff it was totally contemporary uh it it's you know it's what they needed for the for the job that they might get next week but it was a uh, part of a long long tradition
0: yeah so then the solfeggi then that was the uh, the so melodic that, element
1: yeah the the regale were the basics of partimento playing Partimento is a base, and then you you provide the upper part or parts. Mm-hmm. And partimento realizations were maybe for the be- total beginners. They were cording, okay, you know, just you add a chord in the right hand. Mm-hmm. But the serious ones were entirely linear. Think uh, two part inventions by Bach
2: mm-hmm.
3: or
1: mm-hmm. Scarlatti piano sonatas. Uh, that was the goal. So really, counterpoint yeah, it wow. was the goal. Uh, that's partimenti and the rules, the regole. Then solfeggi are uh, vocal exercises, but what's different is that, uh, well, in, in a contemporary uh, college or university, oftentimes you're asked to sing a sofege exercise or, you know, aural skills exercise.
0: I remember. It <laughs> wasn't, wasn't the happiest time for me.
1: <laughs> yeah, they'll, they'll just give you a melody line and then you're on your own. You know, go ahead and start. Uh, back in the day, in the 18th and the 19th centuries, they had accompaniments for all of these exercises. So you sang on top of a bass and harmony accompaniment. And I'm sure it made a world of difference. Yeah, because you heard all the chords and the progressions and the movement of the lines, and so I think these solfeggi they were partly, you know, to learn like do re mi that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, but because again they're they're starting with little kids who who don't know how to read Italian or French or whatever even then. Yeah, you know? so it's it's a way of getting around somebody somebody's inability to read. Yeah. So you can just teach them by rote names for notes. Um uh, and of course it's it was convenient. Those are the names for the notes in those countries. Yeah. You know, for us it's like, oh well, this is some kind of extra name for the note.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, it seemed very obscure when I was in college. What is the point of this?
1: Yeah, exactly. So I think uh some of these exercises many of them are really hard. They're like opera arias. Yeah. Not not in the range, but in the Degree of which they're uh, active and florid and, and uh, ornamented, so I think they were studies in style. You know, you're, you're, the master would play the accompaniment and you would sing, and I think you really learned a, a whole repertory of melodic material. Yeah, you know, think of a singer songwriter listening to other singer songwriters; they're hearing chords and melodies, but the melodies are always in the context of a song. Yeah, yeah. it's not just flying, you know, flying out there in the breeze. Uh, so that that was so fegy. uh in tavolature uh it has an older meaning in the in the Renaissance, but in the in the eighteenth century in Italy, it meant basically keyboard teaching pieces
2: mm-hmm.
1: because again uh the the default job, the go-to job for all of these orphans was a uh, church organist there There were three thousand churches in Naples. <laughs> oh, wow, yeah. and the church was paying for their education. Yeah. So, the the go to job was church organist, and this this continued through the Paris Conservatory. I mean, great composers like Saint-Saens, Foray. Mm-hmm. These people mostly made their living when they were younger as organists.
0: Bruckner, I guess he was an organist.
1: Absolutely, for years and years and years. So, you know, uh, I mean, even today there are a lot of well-paying uh, organ jobs in in big cities.
0: Yeah. Um. You know, it's interesting, the Solfeji, I was reading uh, about some recent studies in audiation, uh, just because I'm interested in the stuff, and um, they were looking at fMRI, what happens in the brain, and they said when a person is audiating, even without making any uh, noise, you know, singing to themselves, it's very similar to actually singing uh, in terms of what happens in the brain, even if there's no noise coming out. So I wonder if, too, there's just this double impact of singing these melodies against the bass and then teaching them uh, as composers to be able to audiate without having to sing and to really hear the melodies um, you know, on the inside and quickly get it out on paper.
1: Yeah, no, I'm sure you're right. And, and then if you add in the partimento side, which is, okay, you know this, but now physically you have to be able to produce it. Yeah. I think that really uh, sort of completes the circle. Yeah. But you hear music, you read music, you play music and you think music then. And the thinking and the playing, uh, it kind of matches up. I mean, I've met, uh, commercial, you know, pop musicians, uh, studio people, whatever. I mean, they have such amazing facility. Yeah. Anything (laughs) you can describe to them, they can probably do in any key more or less. And, uh, so I think that's that's what they were after in these conservatories: very well-rounded musicians who could uh, adapt to the circumstance that they would find themselves in.
0: Yeah, very practical. Well, uh, the, um, the the probably the biggest question on on the minds of my listeners is: as a person in the 20th century who, who's not studying at a Neapolitan conservatory, doesn't maybe have access to you know a wise master who can hand this stuff down what's what would be the best process for learning all of these and really integrating it into our own composition styles uh
1: that's a, that's a question of the moment uh a lot of people are thinking about this and and uh, trying different things um uh, nobody wants to be one of these neapolitan orphans because they had a tough life yeah and, and, and right through the 19th century, I mean, the, these kids in like uh, French choir schools or the Paris Conservatory, they would get up at 6 a.m. And it was music or religion all day long until about 8 when they went to bed. Yeah. I mean, there were a couple recesses or whatever, but these were grim lives. They were almost like music slaves, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So now, uh, you know, w- w- what if you're 20 years old and you're kind of into this and you'd like to get some some real training in it? Uh, well, you could come to Northwestern. <laughs> yeah. But actually, there are a number of schools. Eastman has people now doing this sort of thing. Uh, the Conservatory of Amsterdam, uh, the uh, Schola Contorum in Basel is one of the finest early music places in the world. Uh, things are being put together and maybe put on the web. Uh, soon there'll be more stuff. I, I have a Google site. You can Google, uh, if you search for Google Sites, partimenti uh it'll come to uh, a site that i threw up uh it, it's not completed the partimento part is is somewhat complete uh but it does have a guide for learners mm-hmm. so you know okay uh do you know this if not then maybe you should study this first and then what would come after that and it does lay out uh, a kind of a roadmap for for what you uh, what you should do um it's helpful to have a teacher that you can at least email or skype sometimes to to find out uh, if you're on the right track. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do this for a bunch of people for free, and uh, there are other people around who who have these abilities um, so many great organists you know learned to improvise yeah uh, their tradition retains that uh, but uh it's it's kind of a restarted tradition, yeah, you know classical improv is is a new thing and then getting the uh getting the the intuitions that line up with let's say you know mid-19th century early 19th century uh classical music that that does take a little work but the material is now available as you said it's it's tons of it are on the web
0: yeah Um, now I guess we can move on to the Gebrauch formula because it's kind of in the direction I think a lot of people are interested it's more romantic uh, in terms of the same style of teaching but you know it brings a little bit further Um,
1: the Russian tradition Yeah, and and, you know the Russian tradition is still with us I mean it's one of the great traditions of teaching Uh, what's a little bit less known in the West is that for all of the 18th century so for all of the 1700s until uh, up until near the end of Beethoven's life uh, music at the court in St. Petersburg was Italian hundred percent or99.
0: Russia denies this hundred percent <laughs> but
1: no uh, you know Catherine the Great and Peter the Great uh, they wanted they saw Italian music as kind of Western technology. And they were trying to move Russia into europe, mm-hmm. and so uh, they would hire the great Italian Neapolitan musicians to be the head of music for a few years. then they would freeze, and then they'd go back to yeah. Italy, and they'd bring in another one. so really famous people came came through there, famous in the you know kind of music historian's way of thinking. Um, So that tradition and all of these exercises remained in in Russia. And uh, Rimsky-Korsakov taught in that sort of way. You know, there were patterns you had to learn. Uh, For example, one of his students is uh, Arensky. Yes. And there are a thousand harmony exercises by Arensky uh, that were published in 1890s, I think.
2: Mm -hmm. anyway
1: they they are pretty much um melodies and bases right out of the italian tradition or the 19th century version of it Mm -hmm. and people like rachmaninoff uh went through this training uh and and they got tremendous abilities of course now they were super talented we're not talking about just the ordinary students you know rachmaninoff was off the charts yeah but this um there was there was a dinner in Saint Petersburg, at one point, where uh, Rachmaninoff was invited as a young composer, and uh, Arensky is one-time teacher. I think it was at Arensky's apartment. I'm, I'm, the details escape me now. And then uh, two other great musicians, Glazunov, and uh, Taneyev, were also invited. So this was four very heavy hitters having supper together in Saint yeah. Petersburg. <laughs> And after the supper, they sat down and played a kind of musical parlor game where you had four sheets of staff paper. And each of them just sitting there, not at the keyboard, but just sitting there, they they were given a pen and ink and they wrote out the beginning phrase to a a romantic uh, piano piece. they did their phrase then everybody passed the sheet to the person to their right or to left i can't remember uh and so now you were looking at staff paper that had a piece begun by somebody else and you had to continue it Mm. so you would continue that phrase and move maybe modulate or do something the sheet on to the next guy so now you're looking at two different phrases by two different people and you're supposed to continue that and anyway it went on until the sheets got back to the original person who finished off the piece I look at one of the pieces yeah uh, the piece started by i think arensky
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it's very impressive what those guys could do i i think when they looked at a piece of piano music they heard it they felt it, they really understood because yeah. the continuations are very fine They're they really are
0: and actually i found uh, somebody recorded these on youtube uh, yes uh, yeah, yes really nice
1: i just came across them
0: yeah so I'll post that on the uh, on the page here for the um, for the podcast. Did, was there anything um, I can't remember in the article that said how long it took them, like for you know the sheets to to circulate? It was like an hour or ten no. minutes or?
1: No, apparently the manuscripts survive, but uh, we only have anecdotes about uh, <clears throat> what actually went on. I'm guessing it didn't take too long. Again, these yeah. were real pros, you know. If you think of somebody who would be like an arranger for the Tonight Show Orchestra. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, that, that person is not going to spend all day on a project.
0: No. Uh, well, yeah, that's that's really incredible. Um, I can't. Sometimes it's just like, like thinking of trying to build up that kind of skill. I wonder if they thought of that as what they were doing was incredible, or if it was just like, eh, I'll just knock this out real quick. It's kind of a funny game. I'm going to try to best off real quick and uh, be done with it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I I don't know. Uh, I mean, you know, it's been my experience that um, some of the most phenomenally talented musicians uh, just think that, well, that's that's what I do, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Whereas if you're not, if you don't have uh, that kind of ability... You know, it's you're just stretching yourself to the limit, and you're not even coming that close to to some of those folks. So, so life's not fair in that sense. But yeah. I can tell you from personal experience. I mean, I have very modest musical gifts. Uh, you know, like I was saying, the world was not impressed when I when I showed up. And uh, in studying these things, I've noticed that I hear a lot more in classical music now than I used to.
0: Yeah. Interesting.
1: I, I think I follow baselines better. I, I was always melodically oriented. That's my focus. Uh, and I do hear more and, and I'm maybe you might say I'm listening a little bit more forward, forward leaning. You know, I, I, I'm a little bit better in understanding what's coming up or surprises and that sort of thing. I mean, it's not like night and day, but, but, uh, you know, I'm in my sixties. So if, if if an old dog can learn new tricks, certainly somebody in their teens and twenties could do amazing things with with this uh, these train this methods of training.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, well, then I guess I'd like to talk a little bit too um, about the other article that I read on schema theory and the relation to language. Because this I, th- this is your most recent article.
1: One of them, yes. Yeah,
0: and it's kind of your your. Taking the theory more much more into music cognition, it seems like and, and the way the brain works
1: yes, well my I, I've always been uh, interested in music cognition and active in it, and uh, I think well, I think for composers, it's important to understand how listeners listen, yeah <laughs> because that's your, your 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 customer, so to speak we We have limitations really in in the brain. Anybody mm-hmm. who teaches uh, like uh, musical dictation knows how limited people are in the ability to remember and write down things. Yeah. Uh, again, there are always amazing people who seem to have a kind of uh, exact record of exactly what they heard. I mean, I'm I'm told that Rachmaninoff, for example, could go to the keyboard and play anything he ever heard in any medium. Yeah. <laughs> But for the ordinary person, even ten or fifteen notes, especially if they're random, is more than they can remember. I mean, six or seven random notes is very challenging to remember. So uh, we we do have limitations, and a schema is a kind of uh, framework on which you can hang memories. In other words, if, if you know what the game is, you'll remember more from it. You know. Yeah. I mean, uh, for example, there have been psychological studies that show that if you show a a master chess player a a position of the board that actually occurred in a real game, they can understand it and they'll remember it. But if it's just random places of the pieces, they're confused by it. They really don't understand what it is.
0: Yeah, like it's all got to actually make sense underneath in some way.
1: Yes, yes, it's got to be a kind of human communication. You know, that's, it's like, okay, there's this. I'm going to code this message and send it to you. And if you don't know the code, it's going to be hard for you to, to get my message, you know? Yeah. So um, it's interesting to look at language. Uh, music and language are very different. And yet, you might say they go down the same tube.
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, they, they go through the ears. Up the auditory system through a lot of the same hardware in the brain. Now they're interpreted in different ways, but it does seem that uh, the brain handles meaningful sound in similar ways in language and music. So here would be an example of uh, uh, contemporary linguists. I mean, there are, there's hundreds of different kinds of linguistics. It's a big, complicated field.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But, but there's a, a growing group of contemporary linguists who talk about things they call constructions. Mm-hmm. And constructions are very much like schemas in music. They're, they're short things that you remember and are part of your native vocabulary. So, uh, for example, uh, a, a common construction in the 90s, let's say 2000. Was uh, using a date like that in in this way? Here's the construction. That's so '90s. Okay, mm-hmm. it's kind of a put down, and it's you know obviously you're you're talking you're talking from the position of a later time, mm-hmm. and you're 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 putting down something that is seems a little old-fashioned or something. Okay, you know if you look up dictionary definitions for that's so 90s it will not give you anything like that meaning yeah so actually the construction is the meaning you you learn it from hearing somebody use it in context and it's not the words that added together create the meaning the the words are part of the meaning of the construction so similarly maybe it's you know, schemas, it's it's not that this chord goes to that chord or this bass goes to that bass, but it's the whole package. It's yeah. a stalt, you know. So I, I thought that was very interesting. Uh, my co-author, Janet Bourne, had, took a lot of linguistics courses in college and she knew a lot of this literature. So we kind of worked together from the music schema side and the linguistic construction side to see how they they might align and, and I thought it was it was kind of interesting to see that there are a lot of commonalities.
0: Yeah. No, it definitely seems like a lot of the music theory that I'm reading from different avenues are all kind of pointing in this direction. Um and I just I find the whole concept fascinating. I'm just really interested to see where it's all gonna go. I did like the quote that you had uh near the end um, it was the journey is long by rules, but short and efficient by examples
1: ah uh, yes that 's from the eighteenth century, but it 's it 's an old Latin proverb i think yeah and no it 's it 's very true I, I you know really um, <laughs> one way to look at this might be that uh, look at it from kind of a sociological uh, dimension. Uh, there were things that young professional apprentice musicians did in early centuries, and they'd been doing it from the beginning of time and commercial uh, musicians continue to do those sort of, sort of things to the present day, mm-hmm. right? You, you, you listen to records and you copy everything that somebody you like does and you learn this huge vocabulary things. Well, somewhere in the middle of the 19th century in the German university, uh, they got people, you know, music was really important in Germany, uh, at that time and young German middle-class and upper-class students, these were not the musicians who were orphans, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they wanted to take a class on music. Are they going to become a slave for 10 years to a master? Probably nope. not. <laughs> no, they want uh, a 14 week course. That's going to teach them about music. Yeah. So in a way, um, to, to deal with that situation, the German professors came up with things like sonata form mm-hmm. and the harmony course with Roman numerals. They're, they're well adapted to the adult learner in a short-term course. You know, if you think about Roman numerals, you've got, what is it, a 16% chance of you having the right Roman numeral under any chord, mm-hmm. even if you just threw them out. <laughs> uh, Whereas if you say, write a fugue, okay, that's not going to happen. So that became kind of the literate alternative to a decade-long apprenticeship. And in a way, it set up a kind of uh, straw man of what music is. Mm -hmm. And I think the unfortunate thing is that this went on for so long, and people got so out of touch with these young professional musicians that uh, we begin to mistake the one for the other. In other words, you know, you got to take your two, two years of freshman and sophomore harmony, and then you'll know harmony. Yeah. But, you know, I've been looking at the, these Paris Conservatory things. They, they would take these contest, contests in harmony, uh, like juries, uh, to, uh, and you'd get a prize if you were first or second or third level in in the in these contests well there are very very few people in north america who could get any kind of prize in those contests they yeah. were unbelievable they would give these off the chart chromatic bases with wild enharmonic modulations you'd go from a flat major to e major you know yeah. and, uh, and yet those students the the, the apprentices the ones who like you know, Ravel, for example, they could just do these things. I mean, these were timed tests. They hmm. they they had to, they were given a bass about 40, 50, 60 bars long, and then a melody, the same. And for each, they had to provide the other three voices in a four-voice vocal arrangement in four different clefs, <laughs> soprano, alto, tenor, bass, and the accompaniments needed to be quite contrapuntal. You needed to identify motives and move them into the different voices, you know, in the way a master composer might. Uh, It was amazing. So clearly they were not taking a 14-week course that (laughs) that allowed them how to do this. You know, it was a deep knowledge of harmony. So maybe I'm just thinking, okay, not for everybody. Yes, not for everybody. This isn't going to work. But for people that are really into it, that want to kind of look under the hood and see how serious harmony was taught in the age of glorious harmony. You know, think of the late 19th century. What's not to like? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Then, okay, now now you can go back and, and look into this stuff.
0: So what is the what's the next step for you? What's your next project in this?
1: Ah, well, I have another book project and. I don't know if you've uh, read or seen the Amazon uh, television series. It's called Mozart in the Jungle.
0: I've seen one or two episodes. I just have okay. <laughs> too I've many seen, other series to watch right now. <laughs>
1: yeah, I've actually never seen it, so you know, I'm almost afraid to look at it. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I'm, I'm writing a book that's called Orphans in the Jungle, <laughs> <laughs> and it's about um, the world of these apprentice musicians. You know, they're, they're really just children. To start, and in Naples and Paris and a couple other places, and what it was like to be in that situation, and what you learned. You know, uh, when I had first written uh, music in the Galant style, uh, I got a uh, an email from a linguistics professor in England named Guy Deutscher, and a very highly regarded scholar, and he had a, a daughter who was maybe five at the time, named Alma. And, yes, yeah. And he said, uh, you know, I read your book. I, I think because he was a linguist, it made sense to him. And uh, I mean, he's, he's a fine amateur musician, but I mean, he, re- he really got it. And he thought, you know, I think my daughter, she's very bright, musically talented, I think she could learn this stuff. And, you know, who in England could I connect her to? And actually, at that time, there, there was nobody in England uh, that I knew about. So I, I connected them with people in Basel, Switzerland, connected with the Scola Cantorum, mm-hmm. uh, a student of Rudolf Lutz. Lutz is one of the greatest living Baroque improvisers, Bach-style improvisers, a uh, truly amazing musician. He's retired now, but he has a student, Tobias Kram, mm-hmm. and Tobias started teaching Partimenti and Solfeggi to um, Alma uh, via Skype they they connected their midi keyboards uh through a different uh app and then looked at each other uh via Skype and they would uh, they would do joint improvisations for example tobias would start a piece play a phrase alma would continue picking up uh what the key the modulation then uh, she would throw it back to him he'd play it. all this stuff is on uh youtube you can you can watch her grow up yeah She's now about ten years old, maybe eleven. I I don't know for sure, but uh, she's got two operas under her belt, uh, a symphony, a concerto. She she appears with orchestras playing her own concerti. Wow! <laughs> so, uh, you know, there is kind of a living Mozart to to um, to compare. Uh, I I don't mean the you know the ultimate quality of the music we, that we won't, that won't be known for for decades, but uh, it is interesting to see that. At least given a highly talented child, uh, these old methods really work in a hurry. Yeah. So uh, that was part of the motivation for this book. But I get uh, queries from people, you know, saying, oh, I saw this Alma thing, and, you know, she studied this and that, and how do I do that? And, well, it's it's not an easy question to answer, but it does seem that people are interested in it.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, um, we've gone a little bit longer than our original plan. Um, so, uh, I guess we can wrap this up. Do you have any last things to say? Um,
1: well, uh, I would just say that, um, in its modern guise, this kind of, um, training is fun. It, you know, that's kind of, uh, that's kind of unusual yeah, in yeah. this sure. world. And I think especially when we're talking about training children, uh, that's really something to uh, to recommend it. You know, it shouldn't be just torture and and trying to become the person who plays this Mozart sonata faster than anybody else. Yeah. Uh, you know, the idea that you could actually speak the music and then come to a Mozart sonata and 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 play it with a kind of understanding of what Mozart's up to. I thought I, th- I think that's really uh, worth looking into.
0: Yeah. Well, I applaud you for your efforts, and I'm I'm really glad your book's out there and all your papers, and I just can't wait to see what comes next.
1: Well, thanks very much. I enjoyed speaking with you.
0: Yeah, I had a great time, and uh, maybe we have you on in the future again when your book comes out. Uh, do you have any plans on coming out to California anytime soon?
1: I, I wish. I haven't gotten invited anyplace <laughs> to California. Uh, years ago, I gave a talk at uh, university of Cal- uh, california san diego and uh, you know it's sh- certainly a beautiful place but uh, i'll let you know <laughs> okay. okay
0: all right well thank you for coming on the show
1: bye now bye
0: Once again, thank you for listening to the Art of Composing podcast. If you're interested in learning about what we just talked about, you can go to artofcomposing.com slash episode 11. That's episode and then the numbers one, one. Uh, there you'll find links to all, uh, Robert Yerdingen's books and, um, to the sites that we talked about, some of the videos. You can listen to, uh, some really good performances of those pieces, um, by Rachmaninoff and Arensky, Glazunov and uh, Taneyev, um, and then if you find this uh, podcast helpful, please leave me a review in iTunes. Those always help to get me uh, ranked a little bit better and for more people learning composition. Finally, if you're interested in learning composition yourself, you can always check out the Art of Composing Academy. Um, that is a place where I teach composition, I, I teach classical form, I teach melody, I teach harmony, um, and uh, you better believe that I'm going to be teaching some of these uh, partimenti as well. So I, I think this is going to be really important stuff for any composers in the future. So until next time, enjoy.